All right, so we're back with Kevin Shanilek. We're doing the uh, eighth fetter uh, in the fetter series today. And we have a series of uh, three videos previous to this. You can find those in the playlist called Fetters with Kevin Shanilek. Uh, and I'll also link that under this video as well. I'll also link his website, which is simplythescene.com, which also delineates all of what we're talking about. And in fact, with this video series, he told me he has added some um, some work along uh, information with each fetter. So maybe you can uh, update us on that a bit. Yes. Yeah, so if you go to the website, there's a new uh, option called self-guiding outlines based on what we've been talking about. How do you do this, especially mm -hmm. if you don't have someone to guide or mentor you through it? Those outlines are intended to give you the same sorts of exercises and pointers that at least I would give someone if I was working with them. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for doing that. I'm sure that's going to be really helpful. So we finished last week's discussion of the seventh fetter, uh, which is essentially the seeing through the illusion of form, perception, distance, um, time, space, essentially anything in the world of form. Um, and when that fetter falls, maybe you could speak a bit about how people tend to find experience at that point. Sure. At, at that point, there no longer seems like they're, you're looking at actual somethings out in the room, or even if you're looking at your hand, it doesn't seem like a unique, independent thing anymore. It might feel like you're living in a movie where things are more two-dimensional and you realize that what you're seeing is an interpretation of Light, light waves hitting your eyes and being uh, interpreted in your brain, which is what you've been doing all along. It's just that after the seventh fetter falls, it's unmistakable that that's really all you've been doing. Mm. You can still get around during the day. You can still refer to you know, my hand, but there's no longer the sense that it's an absolute separate thing. Mm. So it can be yeah, a little dis disorienting. Disorienting, I was going to say, it can be, I've seen vertigo, I've seen uh, problems with timekeeping, with remembering to do things. Setting timers can be helpful with this to, to readjust. And I find that people adjust. I definitely adjusted, but even still, there are times, depending on, if I, if I don't have my usual structure of time, it feels like time just, disappears like i don't even know what an hour versus a day is versus a week sometimes so time is very strange yes setting a timer for everything is how i get through the day now mm -hmm. <laughs> so um what else did i want to ask you or say about that uh so so essentially um the fundamental uh, um, orientation to form not being there uh you could almost say you experience now something like the unconditioned. Not that there's some solid thing called the unconditioned, but there's still a, there's still a filter left. Yes, you're still conditioning yeah. your ex experience. It's just that you're no longer 
superimposing your assumptions onto something in particular because you no longer have the sense of there being something in particular. Mm-hmm. At, and yet, though, as you say, there, there's still a filter in place. Mm-hmm. It might be assumed that, well, if you don't perceive yourself as having a body or a mind, then you must not exist. Prior to the seventh fetter following, that might make sense because it seems like you are your mind and your body. Mm-hmm. Once those fall away, though, there's still an unmistakable sense of, of me or I. That's what's left. It doesn't have a tangible form, but it's there nonetheless. Mm. I think you mentioned at one point that in your reading of like Nisagardata, uh, the description he gives of what he calls the I am sense is probably this. Yes, he starts out with, and we all start out with, I am this or I am that. In fact, the name of his most famous book is I am that. And we we come to realize whether through the unfettering process or some other way that, yes, I identify with a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. My memories, my body, my reactions, you name it. If you can get rid of all of that that you identify with, all you're left with is you. Just that sense of I am without the I am that. Mm. And what in the heck is that? That is, well, anything that you used to identify with. Yeah. Oh, I mean the I am sense that seems to be that seems to be remaining Ah, it's, that's the focus of, of fetter number eight. It is, it, it can seem to be absolutely fundamental. Mm-hmm. If the seventh fetter falls, if you drop in the phrase I am, it can seem like there couldn't possibly any be anything behind it or underneath it. It doesn't seem like a belief. Mm-hmm. Also, with the falling of the seventh fetter and there no longer being some things out there by which to define yourself or compare yourself, you might assume that your experience is now completely Mm non-dual because you don't have that that stark separation any longer. However, what the eighth fetter explores is what turns out to be a very subtle yet Uh, we can see very obvious duality that we set up. We still have the sense of me and what's not me. Mm -hmm. We still have a sense of there being an interior or inner aspect to experience and what's happening out there. It's just that how we set up that more subtle duality uh, is, it's much more difficult to, to work with at least at first. However, everyone that I've worked with eventually got, oh, yes, I am still creating a duality here. Mm-hmm. And of course, once the seventh fetter is out of the way, your your attention is just naturally becomes much more sensitive, much more subtle, mm-hmm. by which you can see eventually quite clearly what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I might say it this way. We'll get into the mechanics of it, but I might say it this way. At some point, at this point of recognizing sort of formlessness, where in the heck could it even hide? Like where, it's almost like there's sound, 
wherever that is, whatever that is, there's sensation. You know, you have five senses and you have whatever a thought is with no perceptual distance. There's nothing between anything. There's no place for anything to hide, you know, and that sort of unpacks itself in a way, I think, for some people and others, maybe they, they have to probe this for a while. I agree, especially if, well, not if, but because of the fact that prior to the seventh fetter falling, we just naturally think in terms of three-dimensional space and where something is. Mm-hmm. Now that, or once that you, you don't have that sense of space anymore, it's like, well, well, where is anything? It's like the question where becomes mm-hmm. uh, not a question you need to ask anymore because you, you, know, you can still ask directions if you're lost on the freeway, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, experientially you don't have the sense of space so the word where uh doesn't mean what it used to mean yeah absolutely so how do you how do you work with somebody to try to start to investigate this well the first thing that i do is one i as i mentioned before in previous videos uh, as something of a health warning what we're doing here what we have been doing is peeling away layers of of you, of yourself. Mm-hmm. Part of the function of the self has likely been to manage trauma, something that's happened perhaps decades ago. It becomes incorporated into your, your sense of self. Uh, it's managed. It's governed. Mm-hmm. It may even be tamped down and covered up. What we're talking about with the eighth fetter is the last layer of your identity. Therefore, whatever has been in place to help manage trauma, if you take away this fetter number eight, this belief, the trauma will still be there. It's not like life is suddenly perfect. Uh, So the first few days, weeks of dropping the eighth fetter can be much more than you might expect in terms of uh, feeling very uneasy, even some very intense suffering. Mm So the first thing I do is make sure uh, that the person has at least looked at, well, what has happened in my life? What, you know, what, what trauma have I experienced? Uh, maybe even sought professional counseling for it to at least be aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but once we get past that, the first thing I typically do is just ask someone to to sit down in a quiet space and just drop in the word I. You know, I. Do it silently and just let it reverberate through, well, it's not your body anymore, but the entirety of your experience. Does it seem like that first-person pronoun is pointing to something or someone? You can also drop in the word me. Mm -hmm. Uh, For many people, it has a much different uh, sense of it. Then drop in I am or I exist. And those typically have a a different feel to them than just I. Mm. So it's getting a sense of, well, one, you do still have an identity. You still have that belief. And it goes by the name me or I. (laughs) Um, you, You can also see how it might seem to answer to its name. You know, if you drop in the word me and go yep right here 
Or if you say to yourself, I exist, the message that can come back, you're darn right I do. Thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and and you can also really get a sense of how you have, uh, what appears to be anyway, an interior aspect to experience. Mm. There's something happening in here and the rest is happening out there. Yeah. So it's just getting used to, oh yes, I have an identity and there is a word or words that yeah. can can instantly trigger it. Um, second, I want to say two things about. Oh, go ahead. Just, yes. Go, oh, I was just going to say two two things in reflection. One is a, the bit about um, trauma or having um, maybe not a fully addressed uh, something going on in your pain body or whatever. Uh, I, I find that very interesting, and I've seen very surprising reactions to this fetter falling. Um, this, this subtle self-sense is usually what I call it when it just blips out of existence. The reaction can be really quite intense um, for a short period of time. But the funny thing is if you talk to somebody who's going through it, they also very, very, very clearly see that there's really no one to whom that refers at all anymore. It's this just raw sort of reaction almost. But, but I also find it tends to sort itself out. Although it's an uncomfortable experience, it tends to sort itself out over time. Um, but there's a, quite a variation in reaction that I notice. Um, we can talk about our own experience, but for me, it was different than that. <laughs> for me, it was kind of just a relief and it was really kind of funny. It was like, yeah, it was just kind of like a cosmic joke, really, I guess is the best way I can say it. It's still funny to me, actually. When I even talk about this stuff, it's kind of funny, but, but I also see how real it feels, you know, uh, when it's there. So, mm-hmm. um, and then the other thing I wanted to say was, um, Okay, uh, I lost it. Anyway, it'll come. Back. It, it may come back. <laughs> so after asking the person to get a sense of okay, there is a me, there is an I, or at least it seems like there is. The next thing I typically have them do is to trigger that sense of identity in a controlled way. As it turns out, it doesn't take much at all to trigger that sense of, oh yes, I, me, I exist. A very simple exercise is simply to sit down and uh, close your eyes, and as you open them, just look at something in the room. And in the first few milliseconds of that visual experience, if it is a book laying on the table, it'll be a book, And then the sense of I, that is not that book, will just naturally come up. Uh, It it could be anything, uh, and it could be even stronger if you look at a picture of your family, for example. Mm. Uh, But it doesn't take much of anything, really it just takes living daily life uh, for that sense of identity to be triggered. And that can be valuable in, in terms of a dialogue to help someone see that this sense of identity is not always there. I think we all have a, an experience in our lives of that, that sense of me just not being there. Perhaps we're doing some task that we're just totally into. Uh, and then the phone rings or you know, someone comes in the door and suddenly our sense of identity comes back. Mm. So that... That sort of exercise helps people to see, okay, maybe this isn't a given. Maybe, maybe it does, well, it actually does come and go. 
Mm. And maybe there's something that I can can work with here. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the other thing I was going to say, I just it just came to me. So um, the bit about an inner world, that's the part that I find very interesting because it can seem it's very easy to overlook what that means until you're face to face with nothing else but that tendency to it's almost as if oh, there's a there's a tendency to withdraw inward without mm -hmm. really ever looking at what inward even means. And when you eliminate the illusion of space or distance or perception or form, what is that? You know, it's like it's not really there anymore. And um, just becoming aware that there's no in there's nowhere to retreat from life to or for, to experience or whatever the rawness of just sensory experience. Um, I think God Yashanti has said that for him it was like um, the inner the inner world absolutely completely disappearing, um, or the arc of consciousness that allows you to become self aware that starts early in life turns back around or something like that. So these are just other analogies to it if, to give people the sense of what we're talking about. Right, and and the next exercise I suggest people do gets exactly to that what seems to happen when for example you just look at a book or a picture uh, on the shelf and that sense of identity shows up what i found eventually is that even though there's no sense of space anymore i still felt like i took a subtle step back from experience and i can still remember the sensations that seemed to be in the front of my body it was like i was subtly being pushed away as if I was carving out my own space and say, okay, I see that book and here's me. Mm. That book is not me, I'm <laughs> me. And there's, there's still this, this difference, even though it's no longer a matter of being separated by physical space. Mm. So the, the exercise is about, okay, as you feel that, that part, what I would call a partitioning of experience, Suddenly, I've got my own space, and whatever I'm looking at has its own. Mm. Uh, what's happening there? And in particular, what seems to now be activated by which that partitioning starts? Mm. You can feel like a filter kicks in saying, okay, what's, what's me and what's not me? Uh, I'm going to start sorting things into those two piles. It might feel like a screen or some sort of differentiator or distinguisher. So what I ask people to do really is come up with a verb, really, of what seems to happen. It can be, you know, there can be the tendency to just say, well, just consciousness kicks in or awareness kicks in, which is really general. Mm -hmm. And it's more of, um, you know, it may seem like that, but I ask people to be very specific about mm -hmm. What exactly seems to happen? And this is not something that's going to show up on an x-ray. But every time a visual or even auditory experience or just thinking about something comes up, uh, you, you, know, you get that sense of you know, you know, rediscovering or recreating your inner experience. Uh, what, what's doing that? Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, whatever that is, let's call it... Uh, a differentiator or a filter um, you identify not just with that but as that mm -hmm. because our natural ability just to you know, tell the difference between a door and a wall and walk through the door 
is enough to say, okay, well then there must be something in here, someone in here actually called me. So it's getting, getting a sense of, for you, what seems to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and that leads into the final sort of exercise, which is the main looking exercise, uh, is to look for that thing, that filter, that differentiator, whatever it seems to be, uh, to see if it's actually there. Um, it's not looking for, well, is there an inner experience? You know, where is the boundary to that? And you'll instantly not find one. Uh, this gets underneath uh, that creation of what seems to be an inner space. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you look for it. Mm -hmm. And as with every other fetter where you're looking for something rather than someone, if you decisively see that it's not there, then the illusion of there being this sort of separation or partitioning of experience no longer arises. Therefore, your sense of me or I never, doesn't arise anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, your identity arising, you might call it a two-step process. There's this subtle partitioning, and you say, oh, well, there's me. And I think regardless of the language uh, you speak, you know, first-person pronouns, with the exception of, I think, one or two languages in the world, uh, that's what we call that, you know, our part of that, of experience that is mm -hmm. subtly been separated out. So you're going, you're going after looking for what it is that even makes that parsing experience appear, if anything. Yeah, the partitioning, yeah. And it's, again, it's not going to show up on an x-ray, but just as the word I or me has a meaning to you, mm -hmm. I ask people to find a word that has meaning for them in terms of well, what seems to be happening, even on a you know, quasi-physical level. Uh, so if it's a filter, uh, look for that filter. Mm. And if you stop habitually starting to divide or partition experience, um, then your sense of identity will fall away. Mm. And like every other fetter, once you see that there is no such thing as an inner or outer aspect of experience, there is no me whatsoever, um, you see it's been like that all along. Uh, like you, I thought it was funny. Um, mm. I just sat for about an hour uh, in my office just, you know, could have been audibly giggling. Just, okay, like every other shift, this is so simple. How, mm -hmm. how did I miss this for, you know, in my case, 50 some years? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's amazing how elusive it is. And yet, I guess the, the filter itself is so subtle. If you don't look for it, you'll overlook it, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Um, one thing about looking for the filter is that you're looking for it basically with your filter. Yeah. Right. It, you know, like the seventh fetter, you, you can get into something of a hall of mirrors or a dog chasing its tail. It can be very unstable at first, um, uh, by which the first few times you look, it can seem like what you're looking for just slips through your fingers. Mm. So you just need to give it some time uh, and for your, your, your inquiry to become much more subtle 
uh, and just let it settle in. Eventually, you can just sit back in a chair and, you know, as you look around, take everything in and see, okay, what, what about what's happening, the thoughts, the images, am I collecting and saying that's part of me? Hmm. It can feel like you've got a bingo card and you're filling in all of the all of the squares because you know well that's me and that's not me mm-hmm. and eventually your bingo card is full i might only take about two seconds and suddenly bingo here i am and <laughs> and everything else is is out there mm. um, so one aspect of it is that you see that the perceptual process um, is not a passive process at all you're still actively uh, doing something with what's happening you're you're sorting it into two separate piles and constantly doing that to maintain that sense of separation and your sense of identity mm. um, so that's that's basically the uh, the the inquiry mm. where do you think people get hung up on this one if anywhere is there Downfall um, in it or? Yeah, there's there's a few things. Uh, one is it, it can be tempting or there can be a tendency to start looking for a who. You can start looking for me mm. rather than a what mm-hmm. or a thing. Um, and, and even though this fetter is called I am, as with every other fetter, you're actually looking for something that gives rise to that sense mm-hmm. of, in this case, I am. Um, it can be, uh, you can start to look for the, as I mentioned before, the boundary between inside and outside. And of course, you'll not find it, but you're not going to be working with the underlying cause of, well, why do I think there's an inside and out, or an outside in the first place? Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned before, this, this is the end of the line for uh, your identity. So as, as that sense of me or I starts to wobble, a lot of fear can arise and you may not even notice it. Um, and it can make looking very difficult, if not impossible, because you're still trying to come up with, you know, subconsciously come up with strategies uh, for this looking to not be successful, you might mm-hmm. say. That's a good point. That's a really good point. If you're getting distracted, if, you know, heavy emotion stuff is coming uh, or you're disoriented, not sure what, you know, what your motivations are and so forth. That may be time to step back a little bit and just look and see if there's something else to address before you come back, take a break. Right. Um, another thing that I look for is there's, there's a gap here. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like with the other fetters here, the gap is when you first start looking at something and that separation process just starts up and you start to feel yourself stepping back uh, or you start to feel the separation or partitioning or maybe there's a flavor or taste of me that is just starting up. Um, at that point, you can stop looking at whatever you're looking at and start to to look within for, okay, where's this filter? Where's this differentiator? And it can really help to close your eyes. Uh, however, since all of us became so accustomed to that sense of me or I, it's so easy to jump past that gap mm. and, uh, and, and no longer 
Um, you don't even need the sense of there being a differentiator anymore. So there's nothing to look for, really. Mm. So, so it's finding that, that point of tension where you feel your identity, you feel your own space uh, being created, but you're not quite there yet. Mm. So it's, it's very, very subtle. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean there. So one of the, some, some, I've actually said this to people many times, sometimes early on, but it's just like, you know, if you really go back, I don't know how, through memory, through instinct, all the way back, the first thing that ever happened in one sense that in, in your life is you just took a step back from life. <laughs> and you went, yes. okay, how can I manage and mitigate all this, this confusion and disorientation? And you're kind of reversing that, but you have to really see closely that it's happening you know, and at the level of where, or not where, but just how it's happening, I think. And I think that's what you're talking about, it sounds like. Yeah. Right. And uh, that that sense of, okay, what's happening here? How do I predict it? How do I know it? How do I control it? How do I feel as good as I can possibly feel on a moment-to-moment basis? Mm-hmm. As you say, that is what we're wired to do, really. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the, in the Buddhist tradition, they have what I call the three reminders is that, well, if you're looking for something that is controlled, owned, predictable, reliable, permanent, it, it's not available. Mm. If you're looking for something to, to know, to understand, uh, see things as they really are, that's not available either. And finally, if you're hoping that you're always going to feel good, uh, that's not going to happen either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's uh, when you take away the sense of identity, the sense of me, what you find is that, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, everything else out here can change, can be unknowable, or I, I can't predict how I'm going to feel about it. But I've always had me. Mm-hmm. You know, that that was my prime example of you know, reliability, predictability, knowingness, control. Mm-hmm. If you strip that away, then, you know, in addition to trauma coming up, suddenly you've got nothing to point to and say, okay, what I've looked for my entire life since that first step back, I don't have anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what can arise is uh, what's called restlessness, mm-hmm. uh, which is the ninth fetter. I mean, that's, that's what comes up. It's like, wait a minute. It seems like something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. I had that sort of certainty with the self, and it's not there anymore. Yeah. Uh, another way to translate the, this, the ninth fetter is compensation. You've got these beliefs of what you should be able to find, and you can't. So how do you compensate for that? Well, how you used to compensate right. for it was, well, there's a me that is exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and suddenly that's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, uh, for most people, I would say what the ninth fetter is all about becomes abundantly clear as soon as the eighth is gone. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a few days of, uh, of a honeymoon period, as it's usually called. Uh, but the fact that you're still trying to find something like yourself that has those qualities that you're looking for, that sense of control, knowingness, predictability, yeah. uh, then the ninth fetter just comes to the fore because there's nothing nothing in the way any longer. And the key insight there is, but did you ever need it? 
Is it ever actually needed? I think that's what seems to correct that. It's a very, bi I find it's a very binary, but very deeply rooted and, as you mentioned, can be quite disturbing um, reaction that's still there somewhere. Not a reaction, it's a, it's a reactivity or some kind of energetic thing. So, um, but the key to that is, did you ever need that inner world? Did you ever need that illusory self? And I, to see that it never actually did anything. It was always an illusion uh, and really did cause all the suffering. I think it tends to correct itself, but may, I'm right. sure you have more experience with working with people directly going through that ninth fetter. Yes, and, and what you find is that you, know, you might think that, well, if there's no one here, then suffering must stop because there's no one that can suffer. Mm -hmm. And what you realize is that, well, you never needed a self. You, you suffered and then created a self or a sense of identity to try and, try and address that suffering. And of course, mm -hmm. it didn't work. So here, as you say, it's, you're back to reactivity. It's like working with fetters four and five. And, However, here, instead of you know, with with four and five, you're reacting to what's happening to the people and things around you. Now you're reacting to, but my experience, regardless of what's happening, isn't the way I want it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so suffering continues. And it can be really surprising how intense suffering can be here. One way to describe it is once the identity is gone, then you really learn why it is you suffer. You have these unrealistic expectations about what your daily life is going to be like. Mm -hmm. One way that's described in the Buddhist tradition is what you see is what you see. Or put another way, in the scene, there is simply the scene. That's why I chose that. It's simply the scene uh, phrase for my website is, that's what you wake up to. That's all you get. That is all that's happening. <laughs> and once the sense of identity falls away, you see, oh, wait, I'm not satisfied with simply the scene. I want more. <laughs> uh, so now you're finally in a position to, to, to find out, okay, well, what is that more that I've always wanted and I thought I was getting, whether it was by having an identity or, or anything else that I've ever done? Should we so the, save this for the next video or should we continue on? What do you think? Well, let, let's save it for the next video because I think okay. we can do nine and 10. They're very, okay. very similar. Very interrelated. Yes. Great. But that's probably about as good a teaser as we could probably have. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're finally, you finally, I, I, sometimes I kind of say like, you know suffering um, intimately going through this whole process and, and you deconstruct the, the suffering to various degrees in the self and so forth. But at some point, you're, you realize there, there really is no self to mitigate anything. And you're just now you're face to face with the roots of suffering, which is really good news. But it's there's no there's no filters anymore because so it doesn't feel good. Uh, so exactly. it's it's quite paradoxical in that initial uh, experience. Right, and can feel you can feel kind of lost at sea because there's nothing and no one to work with anymore. Mm -hmm. Now yeah. what? Right. <laughs> well, that that's what we're going to talk about next week. Right. Awesome. Okay. Did we cover everything? I think we did. It's it's really a very straightforward 
inquiry, at least the way I suggest going about it, is just sitting around or even walking around in daily life, just noticing how and even why that sense of me or I arises. Mm-hmm. Finding, okay, what happened by which my identity popped up again or by mm-hmm. which I, my, my sense of having an inner experience uh, popped up again. And then digging down to, oh, well, I assume that what happened was you know, some sort of partitioning device, a, a filter, a differentiator, whatever you want to call it. Whatever resonates with you, that's what you believe happened. Mm. And that's not just something you identify with, that's something you identify as. Mm. And if you can conclusively see that there's no such thing as whatever it is that seems to split experience into a me and a not me pile, then that's when your illusory identity finally falls away because you no longer believe Mm. uh, that 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 even happens anymore. Yep. I love that this always comes down to a belief fundamentally. They're very, very subtle beliefs, but they are beliefs. Right. And the thing about the eighth fetter or the sense of I or I am, you you might not think it's a belief. As I mentioned before, it can seem like, well, this is my fundamental reality. Yeah. You have the sense of I am everything, everything is me. Mm -hmm. And many traditions, I think, uh, say, well, that's the stopping point. This is the end of the spiritual path. And when I got past the eighth fetter, if I didn't look at this list of 10 things to do, I might have thought I was done. I couldn't believe there was two more steps to go. <laughs> and it took me, you know, quite a while to figure out, okay, well then what's left and how do how do I look at it? Yeah. And that's yeah. what we'll be talking about next time. Yeah. Great. So I'll, I'll quote Nisargadatta here. Um, he he actually I heard this in a talk that he gave that was translated. He said, "If you regress properly, the I am sense will disappear." <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Yeah, you have to undo everything you've created about yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what the unfettering process does and what I think any other spiritual path uh, should be able to do. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, thanks again, and we'll see you uh, whenever we see you again. We'll do the ninth and 10th and finish up the series. Okay, thank you, Angelo. Thank you.